Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private Franklin Sigler. Sigler would be serving with the 2nd Battalion, 26th Marine Regiment, part of the 5th Marine Division during the Battle of Okinawa, late in the Second World War, March of 1945. And this is a really cool story. It's something that we don't often see and lets us kind of dive into something unique here, which is this is a private that takes charge above folks that would outrank him and just gets after it to accomplish the mission. So we're going to dive into that and specifically the story of Franklin Sigler. But to back up a minute and talk Iwo Jima and what we're doing there, you know, at a, at a high level, the U.S. enters the war in the Pacific in December 1941 after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The rough strategy is going to be one of island hopping to get over to the Japanese main island to topple their government. We're going to say that they're a nuisance throughout the Pacific. They're, they're invading countries. They're um, committing atrocities in China and elsewhere. So we're, we're going to go work our way west from east to west from the United States or from Hawaii west towards Japan. And we're going to topple that government is the idea. Now we have to be close enough to do that. The, the Pacific is such a, a vast ocean that we can't launch forces from California or even from Hawaii, which is closer to the midpoint between the two continents. We can't even launch forces from Hawaii to attack Japan. It would, the supply line would be incredible, huge, massive. It would be susceptible to Japanese naval attacks because their Navy is still in 1941 when the war kicks off, incredibly powerful. There's Japanese airfields scattered all across the Pacific and any number of islands. And that, that, you know, especially after Pearl Harbor, we recognize how devastating air power can be to, um, to ships. So we can't just go from Hawaii directly into Japan. We're going to have to kind of steps, you know, one step after another, work our way to an area where we can have a jumping off point into Japan, somewhere that's closer. We start to make that move in a strategy referred to as island hopping. And we're going to select islands across the Pacific, really through the central and southern Pacific, that are going to meet a handful of criteria. They're going to have maybe big enough to have an airfield. Maybe they'll have a deep water port. Maybe they just have a Japanese garrison that we can't afford to have in our rear. Now, something that's interesting in this strategy is it's not, you know, if you look at a big big map view of how the Second World War progresses in the Pacific, you'll see this great big red area that is the Japanese sphere of influence. And then as the United States moves in, that that sphere shrinks and it gets smaller and smaller until it's just around Japan. That gives you the idea that all Japanese forces are being pushed back, but that's not the case. We bypass islands all the time that don't have an airfield or we just don't need to attack that island. Even within island chains or atolls, there are certain areas that are just left alone because the Japanese aren't going to be able to reinforce. These soldiers kind of stuck out on an island by themselves. We don't need to assault it. We can just kind of wait it out. Remember, the goal is to get to the Japanese main island. The goal is not to kill every Japanese soldier in the Pacific 
theater of operations. So just kind of an interesting piece that there's plenty of islands where the U.S. just didn't attack. The U.S. and the Allies just didn't attack. Iwo Jima is a is a small island, and it's going to be considered one of the last key pieces for the inevitable attack on Japan. So Iwo Jima is close enough to Japan that it can serve a couple purposes. We're already bombing Japan at this point, and the bombers have the range to take off from the Marianas and other islands to strike Japan. Remember, this is World War II, so strategic bombing. We're bombing cities. We're not... We might say that we're trying to bomb a rail line or a tank factory or a munitions plant. We're bombing cities, and it's we're we're effective when it comes to bombing cities. The United States and and Great Britain certainly are very very effective at bombing cities to oblivion. I mean, there will be cities wiped off the map during these strategic bombing campaigns of World War II. So we're bombing. We are bombing mainland Japan. But there's a few problems that we're going to try to mitigate before we attempt this, you know, grand invasion of the Japanese main islands. We need to get air bases that are closer to Japan for a couple of reasons. One, if a bomber is is hurt, wounded, I guess wounded is probably not the right way to talk about a piece of equipment, but damaged, and it can't make it all the way back to where it takes off, where is it going to land? And the answer is the sea. And over and over again in World War II, you have, have pilots and air crews bailing out over the sea, hoping to be found. And sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they fall into enemy hands. But the bombers are having to take off from such a distance that there's not a lot of room for air. And if they can't make that great big stretch, you know, call it 90% of their potential range, they got a ditch in the sea. We're losing aircraft. Now, the U.S. is pushing out aircraft like you wouldn't believe at this point in the war, but we lose a crew. We lose an experienced crew. We lose American airmen. So if we can take Iwo Jima, it gives us an area where these damaged bombers can land if they can't make it all the way back to the Marianas. But there's another thing that'll help, two more things that'll help us with. Iwo Jima, the airfield, is it's really not designed for bombers to land and take off. But it can be as an emergency, you know, you'd rather land there than in the sea. It is big enough for fighters, which means that the U.S. can stage fighters there. They can escort the bombers into their attacks on Japan. We don't have that capability at this point in the war. So these bombers are getting over Japan without a fighter escort, which makes them very vulnerable to the Japanese fighters that go up to defend the cities. Would be great to get some fighter support. Taking taking Iwo Jima and establishing an airfield there will allow for fighter support over mainland Japan. Finally, because the airfield on Iwo Jima is big enough for fighters, the Japanese have fighters there and they're serving as a bit of an early warning system and can harass, first off, let everybody know there's bombers en route, but then they can harass American bombers heading to or coming back from their raids over mainland Japan. So for a lot of reasons, Iwo Jima is going to be important. Now, the attack on Iwo Jima is scheduled for February 19th, 1945. And the end of the war is going to be August 1945. So we're already talking about a six-month window before the war ends. Something worth considering, and I say it a lot in these podcasts, nobody knows that at the time, and it's hard to forget that. It's it's or hard to remember. Easy to forget that. Hard to remember that. We have the luxury of looking at Iwo Jima and knowing 
get through this fight, guys. If you can get through this fight, you might not go into combat again. But the guys landing on Iwo Jima don't know that. All of them are probably expecting that if they survive this onslaught at Iwo Jima, they're just going to be assaulting the Japanese main islands in a few months in what is probably going to be even worse fighting. Something to consider, something I easy for me to, to look over as well. But nonetheless, on February 19th, 1945, Marines start landing on Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima is going to have about, it's a small island, but they're going to have about 20,000 troops in defense. All in, the United States will send about one, we'll have about 100,000 between air crew, naval, um, naval support, folks bringing the ships in, and then the Marines on the ground on Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, the defenders there take a bit of a different strategy. This is a point in the war where Japan no longer has the ability to repel an invasion of an island. To successfully repel an invasion of an island when the American fleet is stationed there off the coast, you have to have naval support. You have to have some sort of at least air air power parity. You can't, you can't completely see the air power in the naval fight. But at this point in the war, Japan doesn't have that capability. They're not going to be able to effectively fend off like they could at Guadalcanal a few years prior. There were real concerns in 1942 that the Americans would be pushed off the island because the Japanese fleet came in and just about and, and, and wreaked havoc on the Americans waiting offshore. There were air battles every day between Japanese fighters and American fighters. Guadalcanal was a concern. That could have gone either way. At this point in the war, the Americans pretty much have air and naval superiority. And not to say there's not going to be attacks, but the outcome on Iwo Jima is known before we land. We just have the ability to overpower the Japanese forces there. What the Japanese have in their favor on Iwo Jima, and they use it, they use this, this tactic incredibly well, is that they don't need to win. They just need to make the battle so bloody that it makes the Americans think twice about attacking the mainland. So I, I don't know if that ask is easier or harder than in some other instances. You know, it, because they can't defend, because they can't stop the invasion on the on the beach, maybe in that sense it's easier, but it leads to just some brutal fights and it leads to a lot of instances where we have to come, we, the American forces have to comb through caves and trenches. And of these 20,000, there's going to end up being about 200 Japanese survivors. I mean, they're going to truly fight to the death. American forces land on the beach on February 19th and continue to push inland. The American generals believe that this is going to be a one or two week battle, which I think we, it, it's not that far off. I think one week was, was a little bit optimistic. It ends up being about five weeks, which Sounds fast, but it's also a pretty small island. I want to say like seven square miles or something like that. It's just not big. So five weeks takes quite a while. And there's just going to be Japanese forces all across the island that dig in. There's about 11 miles worth of cave and tunnel systems that they're fighting from. So the naval gunfire and air power and all of that leading, into, leading up to the assault doesn't have the effect that we think it's going to have. It looks like it does because the Japanese don't attack as soon as we hit the beaches. They wait about an hour. But then when they start opening fire about an hour after the landings, it's just brutal fighting for almost five straight weeks. That's the situation that Private Franklin Sigler finds himself in 
on um, or in March of 1945, March 14th, 1945. As he and his unit are advancing through Iwo Jima, again, we're talking cave by cave, foxhole by foxhole, tunnel by tunnel, clearing out the enemy. They American units continue to get stopped because they're not running into a Japanese line. They're running into a position and a machine gun position that won't leave and can be reinforced from underground is causing tremendous casualties all across the island. But on 14 March, this is what's happening with Franklin Sigler's unit. As they move up into the advance, his squad leader is hit, wounded, and falls. Now, Somebody has to take charge and something that's, that's, I think done very well in the military is a clearly laid out succession of command, whether it's um, articulated or just understood. So when somebody gets wounded or killed, there are people beneath them that are trained enough to step up and take their place. There's a scene in we were soldiers in the movie. um, I don't remember if they went over in the book, where it's very well done, where they, they literally grab somebody, move him out and say, he's dead. You're next. What are you going to do? And generally speaking, the military, the Marines do very, very well at recognizing, you know, the platoon leader goes down, bam, platoon sergeant is now in charge. No questions asked, get on. And that's really important. If it's laid out clearly, it's one thing. When it's not laid out clearly, it's still generally known the direction it's going to go. That's not how it goes with Franklin Sigler. He's a private. And when the squad leader goes down, he takes charge. He takes charge over corporals, probably over some buck sergeants. He steps into a position. He leaps over a couple folks that probably on paper would be the leader. Now that can happen because you've got a natural leader stepping up and given enough time and given the right circumstances, I think in the military, those people end up finding themselves in leadership positions, but Sigler's new to the unit. He's just recently joined the Marine Corps. It's not as though he has years of combat under his belt. He's still a private. He hasn't really had the opportunity to move into a leadership role, but he just takes the reins and goes with it. Now that's, it works out really well here because he is a leader, but you don't even always want that as you don't want seven people from a squad to say, now I'm in charge. Now I'm going to go because you need somebody to lead. You need a unified command, one person that can make the decisions and others that can, can execute. So it's a little bit risky when a private jumps up and says, I got this, but it says something about Sigler that that worked, that his guys said, Yes, you do. Go for it. So Sigler jumps up, takes command as a private, again, as the lowest ranking member in the squad, takes charge and pushes the assault forward. He's the first to reach this bunker that has pinned down his company for days. When he reaches the bunker, he throws, starts, starts throwing grenades through the opening, destroys the position. But as he does so, starts to come under fire from additional Japanese positions. Now, we talked about this tunnel system And it's not like it's one clear line across Iwo Jima. They're all over the place. So he knocks out this machine gun nest. But next thing you know, there's Japanese soldiers popping out from other spots all across the hillside, above him even in the rock face, hammering his unit with machine gun rifle fire. So Sigler, 
again, on his own initiative, scales the rock face, climbs up, climbs up and surprises the enemy soldiers that are shooting down at his guys, destroys a few more positions, is severely wounded in the process though. Moves back to friendly lines, moves back to his guys and is, is in need of evacuation, but refuses to do so. Instead, he stays with his guys and having just came back from the hillside where he saw all of these little enemy encampments that are camouflaged and hard to see and and well-protected and using rockets and machine gun fire, he starts directing his guys in hammering those enemy positions. Start just, you know, raining down steel on the Japanese cave system directly in front of them that's held up their company for quite a while. As the fight continues, some of his guys are wounded. He takes... Over the course of, of this period of time, he, he runs out, grabs three, on three different occasions, wounded Marines, brings them back to the rear for treatment. You know, three times, back and forth, back and forth. Remember, he's severely wounded this whole time. Finally, after getting the third one back to safety, he is ordered to stand down. He is, is directed that he will seek medical attention. It is time to go get yourself taken care of, and he does. But not, I mean... But look at what he did. He just over, first off, raising your hand and taking charge when that doesn't fall on you. He didn't have to do that. He, the expectation would have been that he sat there and continued to fight just alongside the rest of the Marines. And that would have been heroic in of itself. But instead he jumped up, took charge as a private, took charge of the squad, destroyed the Japanese bunker that had pinned down his company, climbed up a rock face to assault another bunker directed fire into these positions that he knew better than anyone because he was face-to-face with them, and then carried wounded Marines, saved lives, carried wounded Marines off the battlefield. Finally, somebody said, that's enough. We got to get you taken care of. They did. They, they, they fixed him up. He would return home, would be awarded the Medal of Honor. And would, so he'd survive the war, would return home, be awarded the Medal of Honor, and would pass away at age 70 in 1995. So heck of a story for private when he left the Marine Corps, Private First Class, Franklin Sigler for actions on Iwo Jima, March 14th, 1945. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.